Well, good morning, TBA. How are you all this morning? <clears throat> well, good. My name is Dave Shive, and I am one of the pastors here uh, on our lead pastor team, and it is an, an honor to be with you this morning. Um, before we get started, I want to give you a couple of things to consider. The first is <clears throat> a warning to parents who have young children in the service today. I want to warn you that today is going to be a PG-13 kind of day. We're going to be talking about what the Bible has to say about sexuality, specifically looking at some mainstream cultural ideas of sexual promiscuity and homosexuality. And while we will not be talking about things in a graphic nature, they will definitely be of an adult nature. So if you have younger children and you feel that this topic is not appropriate for your child, I would encourage you to please take advantage of our amazing children's ministry and check your child in there and then come back and join us. <clears throat> the second thing I want to say is this, and I really want you to hear my heart on this. My goal today is to come to you with a loving, gentle spirit. See, there's a lot of heated debate in our culture over homosexuality. And when culture and theology clash, often the talk becomes very defensive, judgmental, and hate-filled. And that's not what our Savior is about. And if you study Jesus' life, you will see that he always approached people with a deep love for them. A love so deep that he died for every single one of them. Those who believed him and those who outright rejected him. Even for the one who drove the nails through his hands and feet. But at the same time, he brought truth to them. See, Jesus never backed away from exposing sin in the lives of people because he understood its destructive nature. And he loved them enough to give them the truth. But with that truth always came grace. Truth and grace. That's what Jesus was about. And that's my hope today is that we open a dialogue of truth and grace. And let me say this. Let me lastly say this. <clears throat> the purpose of TVA Church is not to get involved in political stances or debates. Our purpose isn't to take up political causes or even cultural causes. Our goal is simply to show those around us the love of Jesus Christ and bring them the amazing good news of the gospel. So for those of you who, who think that I don't take a strong enough stance in this message, I want you to remember truth and grace for the things that I say. Because no matter what side that you fall on in this topic, no matter what side of this debate you're on, we have to understand that we're not just talking about cultural issues or even theological issues. We're talking about, about people, people who are created in the image of God. And there are family members, there are friends, there are neighbors, our co-workers, and our classmates. So in the spirit of love and cooperation, <clears throat> I want to pray before we get started this morning. So if you'll pray with me. Father, we are asking for your Holy Spirit to be heavy and present in this place. God, we are asking for you to open our hearts and our minds and reveal to us the truth of your scriptures. Lord, the truth that can only be revealed by the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Father, my prayer is that you will speak sweetly and gently to our hearts and open, open us up to what is right 
and true before you. Lord, give us a spirit of love, grace, and cooperation. It's in Jesus' name I pray. All right, I want to go back a little bit and review Brian's message last week. Because understanding this one fact is foundational foundational to everything that we're going to be talking about. And if you didn't hear his message last week, I would highly, I highly encourage you to go to our website or our podcast, download it, and listen to it. If you remember last week, Brian talked about the authority of Scripture. And we said that the Bible is a miracle, that it was written over the course of 1,500 years by 40 different writers in 66 books, yet there remains a thread and a congruency that is unparalleled by any other book. And when studied, it shows that even though it was written by humans, it was inspired by God. It was God-breathed. And the Bible has proven itself to be true through the fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy so detailed that the chance of fulfillment is astronomical and can only be attributed by God. It is the written word of God. See, Scripture is God's Word, and it is the standard that we go by. If it isn't the standard, what standard do we use to measure right and wrong? And I want you to think about this for a minute, because it's key and it's foundational to what we're talking about. If God is not the one who sets the standard, then who does? Who has the right to set the standard for all of us? See, it really comes down to two places that you can land, subjective truth or objective truth. See, from the beginning of recorded history until the late last century, virtually all human philosophy assumed the necessity of absolute truth. Plato assumed that the objectivity of truth, philosophy itself, was a quest for the highest understanding of truth. And such a pursuit was presumed to be possible, even necessary, because truth was understood to be the same for every person. This did not mean that everybody agreed what truth was, of course, but virtually everybody agreed whatever was true was true for everyone. And all that changed in the 19th century with the birth of existentialism, or subjective truth. Subjective truth means that the highest truth is subjective, meaning it has the source in the individual's mind, rather than objective truth, which that source exists outside of the individual. Subjective truth elevates individual experience and personal choice, minimizing or ruling out absolute standards of truth. All that matters is personal experience. And one person's experience is as valid as another's even if our experiences lead to contradictory truths. See, the truth is true for me. My truth is true for me. Your truth is true for you. And your truth doesn't invalidate my truth. Am I making sense? Let me give you an example. Let's say my subjective truth is that because I'm bigger than you, it's okay for me to beat you up and take your stuff. That's my standard. That's my truth. It doesn't matter if your standard is different than mine. It's true for me, so it's okay for me to do it. Now you would say, well, no, that's crazy. Beating somebody up and stealing their stuff is wrong. Well, is it? According to my truth, it isn't. According to my truth, I can do that. Who are you to tell me what I can or can't do? 
See, that's the definition of, sta- of subjective truth. The problem is, is that we want to live in both objective truth and subjective truth. We want to pick and choose what absolute truths we want to follow. Beating me up and stealing my stuff is wrong, but cheating on my taxes, well, everybody does that. And it's the government anyway, so it's okay. So you can't have it both ways. Either you believe in an absolute objective truth that comes from God, or you have to live by all subjective truth that is decided by man. Last week, Brian read this to you. He said, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God sets the standard. God sets the standard for what is right and wrong. And this is foundational truth that we have to agree on. Because if we don't agree on this, then everything that I say from this point forward is moot. If we can't agree on this, then there is no way that we can come to any agreement on any discussion of what, what is right and what is wrong. God sets the standard. That's what we have to agree on. And so what we're going to do is we're going to continue with that assumption that Scripture is the standard that we go by. And if you disagree with me on that, I'd love to talk to you about it at another time. And let me just say this. If you disagree with anything that I say today, please come and talk to me. And let's start an open dialogue about it. I promise you, I really want to talk to you about it. As long as we can do it in the spirit of love for one another. Okay, so let's get started. I want to go back all the way to the very beginning with Adam and Eve. So if you've got a Bible or you have a Bible app, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 2 because we're going to read part of the creation story in Genesis 2. And we're going to start in Genesis uh, 2 verse 4. When the Lord God made the heaven and the earth, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth and there were no people to cultivate the soil Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all of the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. Then the Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now skip down to verse 15. Then the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend it and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. And he gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals, but still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, The Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib 
and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. And this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There are two things that I want you to get from this. One is this, everything... Everything that God created was created to glorify Him. See, as you go through this creation narrative, God is creating the heavens and the earth, and all that He creates is good. He creates plants, birds, fish, and animals, and He says it's good. He creates man and woman, and He says it's very good. And He creates a beautiful garden with every kind of fruit for mankind to enjoy, and it's all good. Everything is good. And all this is done to bring glory to himself. Everything in creation was not created just for us to enjoy, but for us to enjoy it, and through our enjoyment of creation, in turn worship and glorify the creator of the things we enjoy. You see what I'm saying? So food is created to taste good when we put it in our mouths and it gives us nourishment, but that's not its sole purpose. It doesn't end there. Food is created for us to enjoy and that enjoyment is supposed to in turn glorify the creator of that food. Am I making sense? This is important. What I'm saying is important, so hang with me. I'm going to make a connection for you in just a minute. The second thing I want you to see in this is this is the natural order and rhythm of things at this point everything on earth is perfect the relationship between mankind and god is perfect the relationship between the earth and mankind is perfect the relationship between man and woman is perfect there is a peace and a rhythm that is in sync with the creator and his creation and this perfect rhythm This perfect rhythm is for a man to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife in the covenant of marriage. And then the two are united into one. So in everything in this rhythm, so everything is in rhythm and everything is perfect. But then you have the fall of mankind. And man is given one and only one rule. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But they do it anyways. Eve is tempted and Adam stands by and does nothing and they both eat from that tree. And immediately, at that point, everything, and I mean everything, all of creation is now out of rhythm and is now out of sync. Genesis 1.29 says this, Then God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, and the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life. You see, before the fall, everything was in harmony. Animals didn't eat other animals to survive. Man didn't eat animals to survive. Man had seed-bearing plants to eat and fruit to eat. Animals had green plants to eat. Before the fall of man... Man didn't have to work hard to produce food. 
Everything was provided for him. But after the fall, he has to toil and work at an unforgiving ground to produce food. So everything is out of whack. And the truth is, is that man should have died because God said, if you eat of this fruit, you will die. And the crime of treason against God warranted an immediate death sentence. But that isn't what God did. He lovingly and graciously clothed them and he removed them from the garden. He told them of the consequences of their rebellion, but he delayed his wrath and delayed his key. He delayed his wrath and showed them grace. And for the rest of the Bible, from this point on, all the way up until Revelation, you see God trying to provide a way to restore the relationship back to the way it was originally created to be. To put things back into the peace and rhythm of creation before the fall. Okay? We all on the same page there? Alright, so let's move up to Romans. Paul says in Romans that the law has that the law was given to us to show us a need for our Savior. See, we can't meet the standard that God has set on our own. We need something that doesn't rely on our own willpower. And Brian talked about this last week. He talked about boundaries and how boundaries are meant for our safety and our good. But that's not how we often see our boundaries. See, we don't want our boundaries decided for us. We want to choose what is right or wrong for us. Again, we want subjective truth. And this is important for our understanding of how we see God. See, if God's commands are given to show us that we need a Savior, not to punish us or keep us down, Not to rob us of joy, but to give us joy by aligning us back to the rhythm of how we were created to be. Then following God's commands leads to eternal life and eternal joy. Joy that can't be taken away by circumstances. See, God is not glorified by forcing us to obey. And I think that part of the issue is our view of God is of a God who sits up there with a lightning bolt in his hand, waiting for us to cross a boundary and then punish us for doing so. But that isn't the case. See, God is lovingly patient and doing all that he can to align us back to how we were created to be. He understands the destructive nature of sin, and he's trying to protect us from it. And deep down inside, all of us know that to be true because all of us would agree that there is something deeply wrong in our world today it doesn't take long to look around and know that there is something wrong in our world today and in Romans 1 Paul begins to unpack why there is something wrong so let's look at Romans 1 we're going to start in verse 18 But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. Forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, 
But they wouldn't worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, instead they became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So here's what happens. The evidence of God is everywhere. To the point that Paul says that it can clearly be seen and there is no excuse for not knowing God. But because of the fall, because of what happens in Genesis, they would rather exchange the Creator for creation itself. See, this is the original base problem with humanity. It's idolatry. Instead of allowing the things of creation to give glory and to bring worship to the one who created them, we instead choose to worship the creation itself. So we don't want God... We just want his stuff. What we're saying is forget you, God. I just want what you made. I just want the things you made. And this same treasonous sin is in Genesis. And God says, I'm going to give you sex so that you will know that I'm beautiful and that I'm great and that I'm loving. I'm going to give you food so that you will know that I'm loving and great and you will worship me and exalt me. But we say, forget you, God. We're going to use sex in our own way. We say, forget you, God. We're going to do it our own way. And so God says, okay. And here's how he responds. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. So here's what's happening. Back in Genesis, God says, instead of death... Instead of death, I'm going to offer you patience, grace, and mercy. And then we go, okay, in our case, we're going to say, well, I just don't want you, God. I want creation instead. And God's response is, okay. All right. Chase it. Chase after it all you want. If you don't want me, you want creation, chase it. Go after it. And then 25, they traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things of God, and, and they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Basically, what he's saying is that when we pursue our own way of doing things, when we think that we can do it on our own, what we're saying is that we're smarter than God. I mean, think about it. When we walk outside of the boundaries that God sets for us, we're in essence saying, God, I know more than you. I know more than you, the creator of the universe. And I'm going to do it my own way. And so God responds and he says, that is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. And men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty that they deserve. 
You see, Paul is not making a cultural argument here. Listen to what I'm saying. Paul is not making a cultural argument. He is making a creation argument. This echoes the fall in Genesis. And Paul is saying that the natural order of things, the way that things were originally created to be, is for us to enjoy the things of creation in order to glorify God. The man was made for the woman, and the woman for the man. But when we say, forget you, God, we'll do it our own way, then God says, okay, all right, then this is the result of you doing it your own way. And it's rebellion against God. It's rebellion against God. And the same holds true for sex outside of marriage for heterosexuals. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So when we say, forget you, God, we're going to live together before marriage, or we'll have a promiscuous life outside of the bonds of marriage, God says, okay, chase after it. Chase after it all you want. But understand there's a penalty for it. And it's pure rebellion against me. And here's the penalty in verse 28 back in Romans. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and he let them do things that never should be done. And their lives became full of every kind of wickedness. Sin, greed, hate, Envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. And they are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. And just as a note here, if you're asking why is disobeying your parents in the same list as murder, hate, and greed... It's because God is always after the heart, not the action. So the same heart that says, forget you, mom and dad, I'll do it my own way, it's the same heart that rebels against God. They refuse to understand. They break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyways. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So again, you have this repeat of the Genesis story. If you do these things, you deserve to die. And Paul makes it clear, Paul makes it really clear that when we take matters into our own hands and we say, I'm not going to listen to you, God. I'll do it my own way. Not just with sex, but with any of his truths. When we go outside of God's prescribed order and plan, we are rebelling against God. So what do we do with all this? What's our response to this? Because one of the pushbacks that a Christian gets is that if we take any other view other than the one of complete acceptance, then we're labeled as haters, closed-minded, and judgmental. 
And let me, let me say this to you. If you're thinking, who am I to call out sin? I want you to know that I stand up here completely broken and sinful. All of us are. There isn't a single one of us who have it all together. But I want you to understand there is a difference between having sin in our lives and being unrepentant of that sin. Because the issue that we're talking about isn't just the sin. The issue is a matter of repentance. The question isn't, do I sin? Because I do. It's, am I walking in an ongoing repentance? When those who hold me accountable, or when God through his scriptures point out my sin, am I walking in ongoing repentance? So I don't want you to think that I'm coming, coming off as judgmental or better than anybody else, because I'm not. I'm just communicating the revelation of God's word to us. But unfortunately, there are crazy haters out there like this who spew hate in the name of Christ. And listen to me, they are just as lost and wrong as those who they're attacking. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the same list we just read, Paul said their lives are full of hate. To hate somebody because of their sexual misconduct is just as wrong as to hate somebody because of the color of their skin. But unfortunately, there are those who do hate. And unfortunately, we get painted with the same brush that they use. So how do we overcome garbage like this and the predisposed position that we're judgmental haters. I think we have to respond the way that Jesus did, and that's with truth and love and patience. Remember, we're not just talking about issues. We're talking about people, people that we know and care about, and our response to them should be the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our approach should not be any different than any other person who doesn't know Christ. Our hope is of transformed hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit that leads to transformed lives. It doesn't work the other way around. Let me say that again. Our hope, our hope is of transformed hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit that leads to transformed lives. If you begin a conversation with an unbeliever, heterosexual or homosexual, it doesn't matter. If you begin a conversation pointing out all the sin in their lives, then you've lost what the gospel is about. See, our job is simple. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love others. Then be prepared to give an answer for the hope of Jesus Christ that lives in you when you are asked. Invest in others. Love them where they're at. And allow the Holy Spirit to do his job. I want to read to you a story that explains what I'm trying to say. It's written by Shane Winmeyer. Shane Winmeyer is the founder and executive director of Campus Pride, the leading national organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rights. And here's what he wrote in the Huffington Post. He said this, I spent New Year's Eve at the red-blooded, all-American epicenter of college football, 
at the Chick-fil-A bowl next to Dan Cathy as his personal guest. It was among the most unexpected moments of my life. Yes, after months of personal phone calls, text messages, and in-person meetings, I'm coming out in a new way as a friend of Chick-fil-A's president and COO, Dan Cathy, and I'm nervous about it. Why was I standing next to him at one of the most popular football showdowns? How could I dare to have a relationship with a man and a company that have advocated against who I am, who would take apart my family in the name of traditional marriage, whose voice and views represented exactly the opposite of those of the students for whom I advocate every day? Dan is the problem, and Chick-fil-A is the enemy, right? Like most LGBT people, I was provoked by Dan's public opposition to marriage. I had the background and history on him, so I thought, and my own preconceived notions about who he was. I knew his character. No way did he know me. That was my view. But that was flawed. On August 10, 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from Dan Cathy. He had gotten my cell phone number from a mutual business contact serving campus groups. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind? Turn his lawyers on me? The first call lasted over an hour. And the private conversation led to more calls the next week and the week after. Dan Cathy knew how to text and he would reach out to me as new questions came to his mind. This was not going to be your typical turn of events. His questions and a series of deeper conversations ultimately led to a number of in-person meetings with Dan and representatives from Chick-fil-A. He had never before had such dialogue with any member of the LGBT community. It was awkward at times, but it was always genuine and kind. And throughout the conversations, Dan expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family, even my husband, Tommy. In return, I learned about his wife and his kids, and I gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ and his commitment to being a follower of Christ more than a Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. But he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. And in that, we had great commonality. We were each entirely ourselves. We both wanted to be respected and for others to understand our views. Neither of us could or would change. It was not possible. We were different, but only in dialogue. And that was progress. In many ways, getting to know Dan better has reminded me of my relationship with my uncle, who is a pastor at a Pentecostal church. When I came out openly gay in college, I was aware that his religious views were not supportive of homosexuality. But my personal relationship with my uncle reassured me of his love for me. And that love extends to my husband. My uncle would never want to see any harm come to me or to Tommy. His beliefs prevented him from fully reconciling what he understood as the immorality of homosexuality with the morality of loving and supporting me in my life. 
It was and it remains an unsolvable riddle for him, hating the sin and loving the sinner. My relationship with Dan is the same. Though he is not my family, Dan is in my heart. He is driven by his desire to minister to others, and he had to choose to continue our relationship throughout this controversy. He had to both hold to his beliefs and welcome me into them. He had to face the issue of respecting my viewpoints and life, even while not being able to reconcile them with his belief system. He defined this to me as the blessing of growth. He expanded his world without abandoning it. I did as well. See, this should be our response. Love, truth, and grace. Christ loved everybody, even those who would never accept him. And we should do the same. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and I'm going to close with this. I said from the very beginning I wanted this to be the beginning of an open dialogue. And I want you to know that I welcome anyone, anyone who wants to enter into a loving discussion about anything that we've talked about today. Even if you disagree with me, I want to talk about it. So don't be afraid to talk to me or any one of the other pastors. Again, our goal is the pursuit of God's truth and the revelation of his immense love for us. The goal is the pursuit of God's truth and the revelation of his immense love for us. And my prayer is that's what's been presented here today. So with that, let's close in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for your amazing patience, Lord, for us, because we do deserve death. God, all of us do because of the sin in our lives and God, you are so patient and kind and, and gracious and merciful. And God, my prayer is, is that as your followers of Christ, that we will extend that same grace and mercy and love as we try to reach out to a very ever-changing community, God, as we try to reach out and show people the relevance of your love. God, help us to have open hearts about these things. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.